to Khaki Malarkey. This week, I'm joined by Jesse Alexander to talk about his documentary series, Rhineland 1945. Okay, so we ask all of our guests this. Can you summarise your documentary in 30 seconds? Yes. Rhineland 45 is about the last set-piece battle on the Western Front in World War II, when the Allies basically close up to the Rhine River with operations veritable and grenade and then cross it with operations plunder and varsity in the lower rhine region very specific was that Love was that, that 30 seconds i don't know i, I wanted to cram it all in i was looking and I, I was saying that was like 15 that was quite good you see normally we have we either have guests who are like two seconds or they go at least to a minute so that was brilliant german efficiency <laughs> we love it we love it so let's dive straight in then. Why a documentary on the Rhine in 1945? You know, what drew you to this particular area of Second World War history? It was a combination of factors because uh, we, that is, we in the team at the production company that made Rhine 45 real-time history, um, we needed to find a solution to the pandemic because we weren't sure what the border restrictions would be, what movement would be, et cetera, et cetera. And the company is based in Germany. So we thought, okay, we should probably do something within the borders of Germany. Now I'm in Austria, but it's not that bad to skip across and so on. So okay. that, that was sort of a pragmatic thing. And we had an intern at the time who was helping us. And he said, hey, I live in an area where there's some real serious fighting that went on. Maybe that would be of interest. So that kind of gave us a little light bulb and uh, then we essentially we chose the Rhineland campaign in a way as well because I'm not going to use the word forgotten because that is no. the most no, overused it's thing <laughs> it's there in history but it's it's uh, it's a bit overlooked right I think the narrative yes. on the western front is sort of Normandy then Arnhem and then the bulge and then we yeah. win right but Definitely. after the bulge, like something has to happen to get to the winning part. And essentially it's the Rhineland campaign really, that is that, you know, cracks the last proper organized German resistance. And that's, you know, that made it appealing because we don't really think about it too much. Plus um, there were, there was an American army involved, a British army involved and a Canadian army involved. And that way we can kind of hit all of our bases and really appeal to a wide range of people. So in a nutshell, that's how we ended up uh, selecting the Rhineland campaign for the main topic. Oh, plus there's a massive paratrooper drop and everybody's into paratroopers. Of course, well, so. that's true. I was going to say, I because when you mentioned about the narrative of the Western Front, you know, DJ, Market Garden, uh, Battle of the Bulge, it's very much that typical Band of Brothers narrative. And then they kind of go off and then they're, you know, it's the Holocaust, it's capturing Eagle's Nest kind of thing. And you're forgetting, but I did, if I could recall in episode nine, it's my geekiness coming out, they do mention Nixon going off to do the jump in the Rhine, whether or not, but that's it. It's the only brief mentioning perhaps within this popular narrative you'll know of. So it's fantastic to know that you guys are really wanting to highlight this area of history. Because if I'm on, when we did, um, I worked on Race to Victory for the History Channel last year, and we made sure that this was included in. But if I'm quite honest, I didn't really know much about it until I was really in depth researching on it, and was like, how come we don't hear about this as often? So it's really great to know that you guys are doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's on the surface, it's not as 
it's not as uh, movie tauglich as we would say as one would say in german it's like it doesn't lend itself to you know some dramatic storyline with a huge breakthrough and blah mm. i mean it's a slog for most of this for most of this campaign but that doesn't mean it's any less deserving of the attention of people who are interested in history or of historians or of public historians like us so definitely so can you, for those of the people who might not know too much about it then, can you give a bit of an overview of these events? And then do you also have like a particular kind of favourite moment within well, either side? I originally said the Allies in my question, but really on either side of this kind of campaign. In terms of summarising it, um, we chose to focus on what we call the Lower Rhineland. So that's kind of the northern part of uh, the Rhine River area. There's lots going on along the whole front, but this is kind of where the main effort is concentrated in February and March. So after the Battle of the Bulge is over, the Germans kind of the offensive fails, they launch another one in, in the south and that fails too. And so the Allies kind of take up their plan again to cross the Rhine. But they got to reach it first. They're not at the Rhine along most of its uh, length. And they have to choose where. Now in the south, where the Americans and, and the French way down there are, the territory is quite rough on the eastern side of the Rhine. In the very north in Holland, they tried it, it failed, all the bridges are blown, and the entire place could be flooded at the drop of a hat if the Germans so desired. So they pick the in-between spot where 21st Army Group is under Montgomery. And it's flatter there. So they figure, you know, we'll have a chance to bust through on this flat land. We can use the tanks. The Germans are basically on their last legs. They can't conduct mobile warfare. And so the idea is for the 9th Army, the U.S. 9th Army, and the 1st Canadian Army, which in spite of its name is mostly British. Okay. Um, but it does contain the, contain the Canadian formations that were in Northwest Europe. They're both sort of supposed to have a pincer movement where they crush these two German armies that are west of the Rhine still on the western side and then capture a couple of intact bridges at a town called Wesen. That's the idea. Pincer movement right. and then get across. Doesn't work out exactly like that. Uh, First Canadian Army has a difficult time. They slog for like three weeks, actually pretty much oh, wow. four weeks in the end to get finally to the Rhine along its full length where they wanted to get. And in terms of the Americans, once they get going, they're off like a shot and, and they really penetrate and make gains, not fast enough to catch a bridge, to capture a bridge, but they can't start for two weeks because they need to cross a smaller river, not the Rhine, another river, which is completely flooded to the point mm -hmm. that they can't cross it. So eventually after this horrible slog, with the first Canadian army and this belated, I guess you could say breakthrough by the Americans, they get to the Rhine, but they don't get there in time to capture those bridges. The Germans are blowing them, especially in front of the Americans who are advancing. And sometimes they, they blow them within sight. One oh. American patrol, one American patrol even got across to check the bridge and went back and then the bridge was blown. So they actually set foot across the Rhine before Remagen, the very famous mm. you know, American crossing yes. of Remagen, but they don't get one. So there's a pause uh, for nearly two weeks while they prepare for the crossing. 
they expect it's going to be a lot harder than it turns out to be. It turns out the kind of the Germans were broken. And so the crossing takes place successfully. And within a few days, they're kind of busting through. And there's this massive airborne operation to support the crossing, which tries to learn the lessons of the failed attempt to capture the bridges in Market Garden yeah. in, the, in, the, in the fall before. So voila, it's not without controversy, right? Why did they keep slogging away? Was the airborne operation necessary? Could they have crossed quicker? Mm. And these are sign of sort of some of the, the compelling aspects to what this actually was. In terms of my favorite moment or moments that I find particularly interesting or dramatic from a human point of view, I, I shortlisted it to three. Uh, my, I have a, a preface question though. Can I swear or, of course. or do I have to bleep this one a little bit? Yep, no, you can go for it. It's fine. <laughs> I, I don't, if we have any children listening, take your headphones out okay. and put them back in in a minute. <laughs> so there's this one instance, uh, a Scottish brigade tries to capture a small wood and they fail. And then Canadian troops are sent in to try to capture the wood and they have to kind of advance over the bodies of the Scottish dead who preceded them. They eventually capture the wood but it's extremely costly, it lasts like a week. And there's a unit of Canadians then marching out of the wood being relieved, after being relieved. And there's a Scottish piper and a young Canadian officer observing them. And the Scottish piper turns to the uh, Canadian and he says, uh, it really makes you fucking think, don't it, kid? Oh my God. And I'm just like, I don't know. For me, that just encapsulates... Mm, that kind of trauma mm. in the words of the type of person and the type of man who was involved in observing and suffering it at the time. So I think uh, somehow that, that had some appeal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that it's had a raw emotion in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one was uh, a German family. There's this firefight between the British and, and German troops. And the German troops are kind of entrenched or in a, in a farmhouse. And the family, the German farming family is in the basement of their house. And they have these paratroopers, German paratroopers on top of them, you know, firing and they want to escape. And the Germans say, you know, stay down there and shut up or we're going to send you out now into the crossfire. And the grandmother dies from stress while the oh. British are bombarding the uh, house. And then after the village is captured, the British soldiers, of course, they're responsible for taking care of the civilian population, but they also are suspicious of them. And, and mm -hmm. But they end up helping the family to bury the grandmother in the farmyard. Um, so that's kind of somehow there's a redeeming element to it there. So those are kind of two of my, yeah. my moments from the film. Wow, that's really interesting. That last story in particular is very resonant to my grandmother's own story because she's from um, Lamberg, um, near ha is it Hamburg or Hanover? She'll tell me off again. One of the two, somewhere and, in um, the in the northwest. Yeah, yeah, in the north in that area. And um, again, she has very similar of being in her house. The British are bombing because they knew the British were coming and everything. And when they did arrive, they were very scared and they were in the cellar and her sister had kind of been indoctrinated and was like, I will fight till the end for the Nazis. And she was quite young, but she didn't obviously understand what was going on. But this soldier had come down and she just remembers him giving her, it was a Scottish soldier, she said, giving her a piece of chocolate. And that was the first piece she'd had for most of the war. 
and what an odd moment of the contrast of the shelling of potential danger to then now I'm here to help you know it's a very that's a lovely kind of story to come from it so moving on and one thing I find very interesting is when I looked at your brief for all of this because it's it's not am I correct it's not available to watch yet is it the first episode was Ooh. released well at the time of recording let's say yeah I think by the time you publish this everything will be available it's available okay. to people who supported our crowdfunding campaign or okay. people who then purchase access to the film afterwards on our website okay. but I I'll save okay. all the marketing jazz till the end yeah fantastic it's five episodes four hours so that's wow, what, okay. what people are getting for their brilliant for their contribution let's say mm, definitely that sounds really good well one of the things I find really interesting is that you really wanted to highlight the fact and you've already kind of touched upon it different perspectives on the war so you know your British American Canadian German soldiers perspectives in particular but also you know German civilians or and I thought it was interesting Soviet laborers as well like how important and was there something in your development of this to make sure that you had all of these narratives come together as one or was it something as you were researching you were like oh there's people here could have a voice people here you know and then it it's amounted to this one narrative in a way it's a bit of both but I think it's more that we started out with this as our kind of philosophy of the way we yeah. want to do our public military history wars about more than just the shooting and just the generals and just the tanks it's a glow like an all-encompassing all experience for everyone who's affected by it and so one thing that we really found was important when we set out with our very first independent project separate from the youtube channel the great war that we also produce our previous film about the battle of berlin this was kind of this was our calling card this is like we feel mm. like this is how we want to do uh, the history and we figured it's going to be no different on the western front we have to make sure that we can reflect as much as we can of that spectrum of experience because to me that will allow people to take away a better sense and hopefully yeah no i, I feel confident saying it's a better and more complete understanding and sense for what happened than the story just of one side or one yeah. unit or one type of you know there's a place for everything i mean history is broad and and you can do different things and but that's the way uh, we want to do it and in particular the the forced laborers i think you know they do get left out of the story but they're everywhere they're all across europe but especially all across germany and it's part of the daily, um, the daily experience, even of Allied soldiers, seeing and and dealing with all of these uh, displaced persons, refugees of different kinds, and forced laborers, most of whom were from the from the Soviet Union. Wow, that's so interesting. Was there anything in particular? Did you manage to find like a personal account of a laborer around in that area or anything? A bunch and oh, one wow. of the reasons why we're able to do that is because within our team you know we have some language capabilities so we yeah. can read russian we can read french we can read 
German and we got someone who could help us with some of the Dutch accounts because in this area at the very end of the war they they forced a lot of Dutch workers to dig you know anti-tank ditches and stuff like that so we have several accounts in the film we have more in the companion book that can be uh, can be bought alongside the film and so we thought that that was kind of uh, that was a critical element and there's some quite uh, you know, it's quite a dramatic experience if you're a forced laborer and the front line is is approaching, right? So That's we have, you know, a young girl from Kiev who was taken when she was 10 along with her mother. And she wow. describes now age 12 in 1945 when the Americans arrived, first black person she ever saw, gave her candy and, and that sort of thing. So this, I mean, these are quite compelling stories that are as much a part of the allied war experience as shooting at the Germans. Yeah, definitely. It's it's the more human aspect of war, I think. You know, it's really bringing those kind of, those not forgotten, as you said, but those people who are overlooked in within our traditional narratives. Exactly. So I guess that kind of leads into my next question then. So what are some of the challenges you have found of working history within the media then? And especially on this project or any others that you've come across? Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of different challenges. Some of them are specific to, you know, making an independent crowdfunded documentary. You don't know how much budget you're going to have. Yeah. You don't know if, how people are going to jump into the campaign. or So there's always a risk, obviously. But I think once we get going, the challenges we have sometimes are if we want to tell some not as common parts of the story, oftentimes that also means they're not as well documented visually. So we can find books, like we can go and find books from local German historians about what happened in this town or that town. It takes some effort, but it's doable. But it's not like the German army had teams of photographers sending them to the front in, late, yeah. in, in early 1945. It's not like they religiously documented the activities of the forced laborers and where they were sleeping and living and so on. So there were some challenges that way. Uh, also, if if we had only been able to read English in the team, uh, I don't, we wouldn't have been able to make this kind of documentary. Yeah. So it's not covered. Some of the aspects are not covered that well in English language literature. And um, there's of course also the issue of copyright. Sometimes there are cool pictures of stuff or cool snippets of film, but certain institutions, I won't name names, but sometimes they have a few letters uh, as their acronym. Yes, I know who you mean. They're extremely <laughs> expensive. And this oh. makes it this makes it, you know, difficult to illustrate things in the complete way that or as complete as possible that we would that we would want to. So there are some challenges with that. It's always difficult to, to show things as well, quote unquote, from the German perspective, because you have to be careful about how you choose to do that. You don't want to unintentionally feed any people out there who have, you know, certain political beliefs or who mm. want to retrospectively justify certain things or blah, blah, you know, you know, kind of where I'm going with that. Yes, definitely. Uh, but we feel like we were able to overcome those uh, challenges that we were, I mean, the pandemic obviously had a lot of challenges. We managed to interview a German veteran in spite of the restrictions. We were also hoping to interview oh, wow. a British one, but we couldn't make that logistically work. So 
it had its uh, its difficulties. Keeping the thing under four hours was also quite difficult. Initially, initially we thought I can, I can imagine. like two and a half to three. And then when I was drafting the scripts, I'm like, oh, we have to have this one, but, oh, but this is a great account. And, and then it ended up at just, I think it's a hair under four at the moment. Hours. Oh, that's not too bad. I mean, that is the hardest thing. I've not had to do the edit side of it yet, but when I've seen kind of like serious producers who maybe not, not be as historically kind of minded as we are, but they go, okay, you can cut that, you can cut that. I'm going, no, 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 that's the most, why would you do this? Like, stop it. They're like, oh, that's not relevant. I'm like, but it is. Like why? And so I can that is I can imagine that's a very hard challenge indeed. Especially because we're all historically minded. Yeah. Like it's not like the the rest. I mean, you know, I'm sort of the historian in the team, but the CEO, the producer, the director, like they're all conscious of this stuff. Mm. And so, yeah, I I initially submitted longer scripts thinking you know, we'll sort of hash through it together and, and cut some stuff. And then the answer came like, yeah, no, this is like, this is great. Well, we don't want to cut that. And so we all suffer from the same uh, problem, but I think in the end, it's not that bad of a problem. No, it's not. So no. we ended up, we ended up with uh, a film that we're pretty proud of. And I think is a pretty, I think it's the, it has a chance at being the most complete audio-visual project related to this campaign. And oh, that wow. was kind of our objective. That's fantastic then. Okay, now's the time. Put your marketing in and then we'll move on to the next set. <laughs> All right, so if anybody out there has now become curious or piqued their interest and they might want to uh, buy the film or the companion book as well and all the stuff that comes with it, you can go to realtimehistory.net. That's realtimehistory, one word, dot net. And you'll find it there. Or you can just Google Rhineland 45. And I think we're the first Google result because we've got our search engine optimization stuff in order. So, Ooh, well done. right. It's all on our website and uh, accessible there. And I've just done it. Yep, yeah, put it on Google Rhineland 45. It's the first one that comes up. So that's very go. easy. Fantastic. And we'll make sure when we put this out here, we will cool. link it all as well. So don't worry. And my grandfather is in it just in case that's, oh, you know, for on. my extended family. Please explain, how, what, how, are we allowed to get any spoilers or is that like you must watch to find out? No, no, no. Uh, yeah, my grandfather was a private in the Canadian army at the time in the third infantry division. And for most of this campaign, for the first part of the campaign, he was in hospital recovering from a wound that he suffered in late 1944. But then for several days during this campaign, he was in action providing mm. machine gun support to the PBI, the, the poor bloody infantry on foot in front of him, uh, since he was part of a, a carrier team with a heavy machine gun. So wow. we included, you know, he didn't play a huge role. He wasn't some commanding officer, but we included him in the story because uh, that's kind of a pretty cool aspect to have. And my mom was super happy about that as well. So, you know. Always got to do what makes your mom happy. Got to nice. check the boxes. Oh, definitely. So... Okay, let's talk about you then. What got you into history? That very same gentleman, my grandfather, because uh -huh. it was his sort of stories about his experience in the war, which of course I realized later were very heavily edited for my child, childish mm. consumption and so on. But it was those kinds of stories. And my grandmother's four brothers also served uh, over in Europe in World War II. 
in the Canadian Army as well. And that kind of lit the sort of was the spark, I guess you could say. And after that, and this was pre-internet, right? When I was a kid, I'm giving yeah. away a little bit of my age, but that's fine. Pre-internet, visit my grandparents. He's got shelves of books. And like, that's what I did the whole time. There was nothing else going on really. And that kind of started a love affair with history that uh, is still kind of going strong. I like that. So how did you get from this little boy reading books to creating and producing documentaries? Now that's a long story, but the okay. short version is <laughs> I studied history at university because I liked it so much, even though I wasn't quite sure what the job opportunities might be. Then I was lucky enough to find a couple of jobs in interpretation, tour guiding as a student, which I think you, you started out in a similar yeah, path. Yeah, definitely, actually. Then I got a job at a museum for a while. Then I went on an adventure and I Ooh. moved to Europe, went to Germany, learned German and needed money, but wasn't in a position. I had no network, I had no connections. I didn't really know the language very well at first. So I took a 10 year sort of hiatus from anything history related and did administrative work. And then I decided, no, I'm going back. And I randomly applied to be the new host of the Great War YouTube channel. I happened to see that they were starting a new phase of the project after the mm -hmm. armistice and after the former hosts left. And they said, yes. Wow. And like, then my life totally changed. And I was back in the history game, being a public historian, working with documentaries and professional producers and professional video editors and taking lessons on how to train my voice to speak better in front of the camera. And it just, it's been a bit of a whirlwind since then, but it's been fun. I'm a firm believer if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And that really does sound like the timing is too perfect for it to fall into place. How wonderful is that? I no, uh, somehow I nudged myself at the right time and it all yeah, worked out. Definitely. And I'll, well, well, glad you are because we're glad to have you here tonight, obviously. So was one of um, our kind of favorite questions. If you could bust any historical myth, what would it be? I mean, obviously they're legion, right? But I think... I would go with uh, the French can't fight or the French yes. did couldn't fight in 1940 that, you know, the Germans had some kind of awesome, the best army ever in World War Two. And maybe maybe that the only the victors write history. I think I might want to bust like that one a little bit, too. Yeah, definitely. Because it is true, I guess, a lot of it, especially the military history. There's a lot of, you know, those who win and that's how the narratives formed. But we don't really hear about the other side and, you know, the kind of ongoings there. You'd be surprised. I mean, we do and we don't. And sometimes the idea that the victors are the only ones to write history can be used to cover up a lot of interpretations that, uh, that aren't particularly responsible in terms of history, uh, right? So yeah. if we're talking about World War II and we saw the victors write history, well... I think that the German generals talking to the Americans after the war and writing reports for them, especially about what happened in the East, they had a huge influence on how people interpret it, how people look at the Soviets, how people look at the performance of the German army. So it's a very murky, a very murky area. So I think mm. I would, I would try to do some, uh, some myth busting in there somewhere. Oh, I like that. It could be for another show. You never know. <laughs> 
Okay, finally, what has been the best moment of your career so far? Yeah, that's hard. There have been quite a few. I think... Oh, you can list them off. Well, okay, I'll go with my top three then. How's that? Go on then. I think getting the job hosting the Great War YouTube channel was was a watershed moment because after these 10 years not working with history, you know, I was back in. Yeah. I, I was back in the saddle and it was very, very challenging because a lot of it was new, right? Being in front of the camera, trying to write scripts rather than reports or papers or museum mm. labels. I think another one was my first full-time history job at Canada's Cold War Museum in Ottawa in a in a former nuclear bunker. That was pretty cool. That was kind of how I realized, oh, hey, cool. I can make a career out of this. I didn't see the sun for three years, but that's uh, a okay. small price to pay. Yeah. But I think for pure emotion, it was something entirely different. As a part of my jobs working at different universities in student services, I had to organize one time a talent show. And there was this like really shy kid who said, yeah, I want to sing in the talent show. I was like, okay, but he seemed so shy and awkward. I was really, I really didn't want him to embarrass himself in front of hundreds of people with lights on stage. I mean, we rented a whole club and everything. And he got up there and he was singing a song from the Lion King. I was like, holy, gee, this has the potential, you know, for a total disaster. Yeah. And that kid opened up his mouth and I swear to God, it was like a chorus of angels. Wow. His voice was so good and so powerful. I was just standing there in the crowd like, I don't even, I don't even remember the details. Uh, and I was just so happy for him that somehow just emotionally, that was like a real highlight, I think. Yeah, I can really, um, for a second, I've, have you seen um, about a boy with Hugh Grant? I am the worst person for uh, pop culture you could ever imagine. Okay, I didn't worry. even get your references to to uh, Band of Brothers. The... Yeah, no, oh, never watched it. Oh, I thought never you seen a single person. episode. Nope, oh, never seen oh, it. Okay, well, don't worry, because I was just saying in that film, I'm awful with films and stuff as well. But some I've tapped into, and that I just thought there's a scene exactly how you described a young boy gets on stage, sings, and it was awful. But I'm so glad to hear that yours was a really lovely moment instead. We did have a few <laughs> awful performances, but that one was awesome. Yeah, that was the memorable one. Oh, how wonderful. Okay, shall we finish on the fun round then? Are you Let's ready for this? I am okay. ready as I'll ever be. Brilliant. I think it's going to be a good one. So I'm going to ask you a set of questions to give your first immediate answer to. And we'll start off with, who is your favourite figure in all of history? The French historian and resistance fighter, Marc Bloch. Oh, okay. Any particular like reasoning on that one? Well, for one thing, a lot of important figures in history really have a dark side, so it's hard yes. to pick them as your favorite. But this guy wrote top-notch history, then the war comes, and he gets involved in the resistance, and he writes a top-notch history book about the defeat in 1940 while he's you know, hiding from the Germans. And then he ends up being killed by them because he's oh, wow. discovered as most resistors, active resistors were. So that to me is a real compelling storyline. And uh, I also had to read a lot of his stuff for medieval history at university. So he's like this kind of Renaissance man who also ends up morally being firmly doing the right thing. Yeah, oh, that's incredible. I'm so glad you've mentioned that. I never heard of that story before. Every day is a day. 
Thank you. Okay, so who's your least favorite figure in history then? Well, I mean, come on, I could take the easy way out here and be like, yeah, you know, Stalin and Hitler and la, la, la. But I would say any of those ancient or medieval or early modern kings who ate themselves to death. Okay. You've got to be like, you've got it made. You're born into this awesome position your life is better than 99.9% of the people in your miserable period in history. And you eat yourself to death. Like there was this one King of Sweden in the 1700s. And there were some, I don't know, Roman emperors. I I forget Mm. the details because it's been a while since I did anything Roman, but I'm like, that's gotta be the dumbest move ever. So I'll go with that. Okay, yeah, I like that. It's very true. It's very stupid. Like, why would you when you've got all of that in front of you? Okay, so our next question is, if you were going to go on a road trip, and we always have to, it's now developed, this is a bit of a magical car, so, you know, acts, uh, well, languages, nothing of this matters, okay? Okay. And you have three people with you in your car from history, who would you want? As a North American, I love road trips. There's nothing more legendary than a good road trip. And so I would take maybe one of the all-time road trippers, Marco Polo. Oh, yes. Like, if the dude can go from Venice or Milan or wherever, or Genoa, to China, like, I want him on my road trip. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite impressive mileage, to say the least. Exactly. And then I would, I think we'd want, like, a gender balance. I think uh, I'd want to have a good time. I'd want a bit of a party going on. So I think I'd take Josephine Baker. Oh, yes. The, yeah, the American, then eventually slash French, like, dancer, right, from the 1920s, yeah. Roaring Twenties, we're going to have a party. Oh, in for She's it. probably got good taste in music. I feel like a 1920s dancer would, would go for some 90s Euro dance, because that's, yeah, that's one of my yeah, favorite genres. Yeah, she's like the techno, yeah. So, and then, to balance things out, I think I would go with Cleopatra. Oh wow! She seems, so she seems like a she seems like a dramatic, you know, risk taken kind of gal, and you got to have somebody a bit spontaneous and stuff on your road trips. So completely. Oh, well, that's a great car. That really is. I love that one. Okay, final question then. If you could go back in time for one day, where and when would you go to? Well, I'm very interested in military history, but I don't want to be getting shot at. So I think I might choose the 1st of August, 1914, and plop down in Paris or Berlin and see what the atmosphere is like and sort of absorb some of that, some of that tension in some ways, some of the excitement, some of the foreboding, Mm. all that kind of thing. And maybe I drop in on Charlemagne crowning himself Holy Roman Emperor in, in the ninth century. I mean, the guy was like seven feet tall, crowning himself Holy Roman Emperor. I don't know much about that early medieval period. I think it would be cool. Yeah, definitely. That would be the two very kind of cool moments. I've always said I'd love to go back to that like kind of final Edwardian quintessential type summer just before the outbreak of war, or, you know, the perfect summer as they call it, and just seeing how perfect was it, or is it hindsight that makes it perfect kind of thing. Oh, do you know what's a fantastic note to end on? And just again to remind listeners, where can we find the documentary? Where can we find you on social media, etc.? 
Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Jesse underscore history, and you can find the documentary Rhineland 45 by Googling Rhineland 45 or by visiting our website at, at realtimehistory.net. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on, Jesse. Been my pleasure. And that was Jesse Alexander talking about Rhineland 1945. It's going to be a great documentary series coming up. Do make sure to check it out. Um, in the meantime, next week, we have a very exciting episode coming up. Um, it's going to be looking at mine and Phoebe's experience at the Chalk Valley History Festival. Um, so it's going to be a very exciting one. And after that, we will be taking a bit of a break on Kaki Badaki. As we've mentioned, our incredible sound editor, Zach, is off to the Olympics um, to go work there. So he'll be in Japan and we will be taking a break whilst he's there. And we'll be back around a month after the following episode. In the meantime, don't forget to like, follow, share everything with us on Twitter, at Kaki Malaki. And this is it. This is me, Olivia Smith, signing off.